You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Oh, you, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, you want me to introduce this episode? Yeah, this is your episode. Oh, cool. Hey, it's the Long Form Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Aaron Lammer, here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, guys. Sorry, I was uh, asleep at the wheel. So you were receiving an important text message. <laughs> yes. It looked like. There's going to be a pop-up dinner tomorrow. <laughs> it's going to pop up. Very exciting. Aaron, who did you talk to this week? Uh, I talked to David Kushner, who is a very prolific writer. He's written for Rolling Stone and many other places. He did, writes... you, did you like talk to him about productivity stuff? I feel like that guy writes a story like every 10 days. He, kinda, he was kind of lackadaisical about <laughs> it. He was like, yeah, you know, just like got a lot of like irons in the fire, you know. Keep he did on, a story for on. us last year. Oh, yeah. yeah. Got an out of a story. Bones Check Mar- that out. Bones What's the Mariana? title on that? Bones of Mariana. Yeah. We talked about that. Um, I mean, and the crazy part is that story he said he had been working on for years. So even though he's producing all these stories, he um, actually spends quite a while on them. Uh, he writes a lot about uh, the video game industry, um, crime and cyber crime. And he's a really interesting guy. Um, and he's a fan of the show, which I always appreciate because I have ego. <laughs> So this episode made you feel good. Yeah, he made me feel good about myself. That's great. That's great. That seems like a win already. That's, that's the goal. Uh, that's a rare. Aaron, if you wanted to make someone feel good this Valentine's Day, what do you think you'd do? I would go to proflowers.com. And here's what I'd get them. A dozen red roses, a free glass vase, a teddy bear, and gourmet chocolates for only thirty nine ninety nine. So if you're listening to this right now, you have not very much time to put in an order and uh, get yourself in the clear for this Valentine's Day. We have a second sponsor this week. It's a tiny letter. From the good people at MailChimp. It is from the good people at MailChimp. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. We thank them for their sponsorship. Here's Aaron and David Kushner. Welcome, David Kushner. Thank you for having me. Of everyone I've talked to on this show, um, the main thing I noticed while I was preparing for this is you're you are the most prolific year per year feature writer I've ever <laughs> encountered. I started reading backwards your stories and I thought I was done and realized I had just reached the pagination point and I'd only gotten to 2008. <laughs> so my first question to you is uh, wh- how many how many do you do you plan how many stories a year you're going to do? 
No, no, I I don't. Um, you know, for me, there are so many compelling stories to tell, and I think that's just my primary motivation. In addition to making a living, um, yeah, I was gonna say, do you have like ten, <laughs> do you have like ten kids or something? Yeah, exactly. No, you know, I just think that there's there's just I'm always seeing stories that I just kind of fall in love with, and I want to tell them, and. Um, there's no real set plan other just other than just how much can I manage, you know? And I find that I can manage more than maybe I thought I could. And, um, you know, I think one of the best bits of training that I ever had for this job, and I mean this seriously, was being a waiter um, in college in Houlihan's in Georgetown. And I, I mean, it was insane. I'd go there on a Saturday night and I'd have, you know, 20 tables and one table wanted nachos, another table needed a straw, another table needed a check. And I had to sort of start partitioning my brain to remember all of these things and to pace it. And I find that that skill really comes in handy now because, you know, stories are always at sort of at different stages of development for me and for anyone, I, I suppose. In that, um, you know, you're researching, you're calling, someone's not calling you back, you're writing, you're traveling. And um, I, I do think now that I've been doing this a while that this weird sort of biorhythm that I've fallen into for myself enables me to be more prolific. It enables me to produce more because I kind of know when my energy's dipping in, in researching area and maybe I need to write a little bit or, you know. And also what I find is that one story tends to lead to another. Well, that was another pattern I noticed is you revisit topics. Mm -hmm. Like you did recently did a story on uh, Anonymous um, and its relationship to the Steubenville rape case. Right. And then I looked back and I was like, oh, you did a story about Anonymous five or six years yeah, ago. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and back in like 2008. And is that like... I still have contacts kind of thing. I mean, how, what, what leads you to loop back like that? Well, you know, partly it's just that um, I think that when you're, at least the way I am, when I'm working on a story, I just, I am, I get obsessed with it. I just cannot report enough. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just, I, I go so deeply into the world. I'm thinking about it all the time. I'm calling people, I'm talking to them and, you know, and inevitably, what I find happens is that in the course of doing that, you start doing that, you start learning of different things. And yeah, you do build relationships, but I'm never in one story and thinking about, you know, where's the next one going to come out of it. It's just more like, I, I think because I'm writing about different worlds, and I do write a lot about, you know, what we might call digital culture, which is a world that's constantly in transition and there's new players all the time as there aren't anything, but I think maybe particularly there that, you know, so when I started writing about anonymous back in 2008, when they were protesting the church of Scientology, you know, it was fairly kind of new at the time. Like people didn't really know what anonymous was. Um, but I had been following it pretty early on, was familiar with 4chan and all that. Hold on. Let me expel this. Dog. Okay. Okay. <laughs> People think I'm wearing a bell. You've, you've, you've over outworn your welcome. Come on. Uh, sorry, Pooch. I'm sorry. You're banned. Max Linsky's dog interrupts the <laughs> podcast again. Oh well. Uh, so yes, uh, anonymous is, is somewhat something that you had that had it was a different in a different place yeah, by the like, time you come back to it. Right, but I think it's just and I and I and I'm, you know, like we were talking about before we started here. Um, I am sort of a big like. 
narrative nonfiction geek. I mean, I've always been so fascinated by that. And in college, just read everything by Hunter Thompson and everything by Tom Wolfe. And, you know, I would see patterns in what they did. I mean, like Hunter, you know, you think about Hunter. He wrote a lot about politics. He wrote about sports. Like, it seems like most writers have a couple areas. And I didn't really think about it so much at the time. But what I began to realize is it just makes sense. You know, you, you get more immersed in a world you get to know people. You get to know the language of that world. Yeah. And you do all that heavy lifting, which is rough. You know, it's rough to land on a different planet and, and learn the language and, you know, have people talk to you and all that. So once you do it, you know, when there's more in that world to explore, it just makes total sense to go back to it when there's another story. Yeah, it's a little bit like I remember uh, I read an interview once with Quentin Tarantino where he was like, man, I learned how to make a martial arts movie. It, like, took forever to figure this shit out. Of yeah. course, I, I can't only make one martial right. arts movie now. Right. Um, so, but the unusual thing about your career is that you haven't picked one or two of those fields and then iterated within it mm -hmm. you've picked like five or six of them <laughs> so you have a string of uh the first pieces i came across that you did you've done a number of profiles of creators of video games mm -hmm. and people within the video game industry right. you also have a long string of pieces about hackers right and particularly i'm going to even go as specific as hackers with disabilities <laughs> which prove advantages in some other way hmm that's interesting i guess that's true there's been the blind one there was yeah. the paraplegic yeah, yeah. you're yeah. right so these are some pretty specific yeah. um niche topics yeah. um and additionally you've done um you know you've done these anonymous stories and mm -hmm. you also have a uh, there, there's there's several other topics that that have come back um I'm wondering when you when you come back to a story like that, or when you when you spend a longer time in it, like something like video games. Mm. Um, your first book is about the guys who did Doom. Right. Um, you then were also for a long time covered the Rockstar Games guys yeah. who make Grand Theft Auto. What do you learn? I mean, what like what what do you pick up as you come around a second time? Mm. Those kind of things. Mm. That's a good question. Yeah, I mean. If you go back to, like you said, my first book, Masters of Doom, I mean, that I did that back in, I guess the reporting officially started in 2000, but really that's sort of how I got started because, you know, the way I got started was um, that in the early 90s, um, you know, it really wasn't kind of the internet like we know it at that point. It was just BBSs, you know, yeah. bulletin board services like dial up with a modem and so on. And um, at the time I was working, like I told you, I was working at this lecture company where we booked lecture uh, speakers on the lecture circuit like Timothy Leary and Hunter Thompson and Tom Wolfe and so on. And I had actually, I gotten to know Timothy Leary, who I was booking, my job was to book him on college campuses. Well, Tim Leary turns out at the time was... Uh, contributing editor of an early magazine called Mondo 2000, which was like I don't know. Do you I, I, ring I, a bell? No, I don't. I don't know it. I can sort of imagine what a magazine <laughs> called Mondo beautiful, 2000 that beautiful. Timothy Leary was involved. Yeah, in. it was a beautiful, glossy magazine run by a bunch of just really interesting kind of early cyberpunk, cypherpunks, you know, bohemians out of Berkeley or whatever, and they were covering what they were calling cyberculture at the time. And yeah, so that interested me. Um, and I was talking with Tim about it. And I think I, I had some ideas and I got hooked up there. But um, 
you know, and this kind of gets back to your question, which was that for me, what was interesting at that time, and then I started working for a BBS called SonicNet, which was like trying to be like the Rolling Stone. It wasn't the internet yet. It was the Rolling Stone of like the BBS world where we would put like, you know, we would have, um, I remember, I think SonicNet technically had the first song online and we were all sitting around a table. This had to be like 1993 or four. So let's rewind here. How did you get a job at SonicNet? Okay, I digress from your question. (laughs) No, no, no. uh, (laughs) It's all connected. If we loop back, we will eventually get to 2000. Yes, we will eventually. So so you, how did you get a job writing for a, a online publication in 1993? Well, it wasn't so much writing for them. Basically, um, it was it was a BBS, which was the style of service. And at the time, you know, there were some early communities online, like the Well, and yeah. you know, in San Francisco. My, and da- you, my dad's a big Weller. Was he? There's a big Well, Grateful Dead. Was he a Deadhead? Yeah. yeah. So it was like Deadheads. You know, it was Deadheads and gamers were, yeah. were basically the ones on the internet, and. Um, so there was the well out west. There was Echo here in New York, um, and um, SonicNet was one of the first like dot coms. It was down um, uh, in in Tribeca, and essentially what I had come from this job as a lecture agent, and I had connections in the literary world and the music world. So basically, I just I, I met these people somewhere at a party, and I pitched myself to them to say, look, you know, why don't we do interviews with people? on you have to go back to the terminology of the time on the bbs right it wasn't on the site but nobody was doing this at the time there literally was no it wasn't there were the word chat did not exist at the time now see i was on bbs's yeah bbs period but what i don't really remember probably because i was only trying to access pornography on bbs's Mm -hmm. how did you how did someone find out or is that now oh now it's become (laughs) so easy it's no no longer a person the the game is all gone um but how did how did people hear about a bbs i mean were you like advertising in the village well okay so basically i pitch i i made this pitch and they they bought my pitch and they hired me so my job i didn't even know what my title was but i was my job was basically to to get well-known people to go down to our rat infested loft in tribeca and sit at a computer and take questions and in first of all i i had to explain to everyone i called what the internet was like yeah. no one under and and I we a lot of people didn't want to do it. But, like, well, give me like what kind of people we're we talking. About? I mean, I can I can tell you the ones who would do it, and maybe it's not that surprising. You know, it was people like David Byrne. Oh, okay. You know, it was people like, oh, gosh, who was... And who was asking the questions? Just people who came on the BBS. <laughs> okay, well, here the dirty. Here's the truth is going to come out. Yeah. Well, basically, it was all we, you. Yes, I was basically like sibling it, you know, I was like five people because and we had these really cool people down. We had like, you know, like I said, I mean, David Byrne, we had um, Radiohead, actually, they were one of the earliest ones to do it. So it's basically the format of the like Reddit, ask me anything. Kind of, but it was in real time, you know, it was basically chat, but there was no filtering. It was total chaos. So it tended to be four versions of me and then maybe one you know, guy in a basement and, you know, um, how many, like how many incoming connections can a BBS even (laughs) handle? I I mean, we could have handled more than we had, put it that way. (laughs) But you know, what worked was that, and this was the, the brilliant marketing team there at Sonic that they would start taking out ads in the village voice and the ads looked like club ads. And it said Sonic net, it said BBS, which nobody knew what that meant. It had a phone number 
And then it would list dates and people like, okay, David Byrne on this date, Henry Rollins on this date, you know, Radiohead on this date. People are like, what? You know, where can I see Radiohead? And they call the number and they realize it's this computer service. So it was all a big kind of uh, mindfuck basically at the time that um, and, and it would, you know, it was it was it was a lot of fun because yeah. um, it was so new at the time and it was really exciting and it was before the web existed. I mean, I was there two years before there was a web and I remember the day we were sitting there and we saw the web for the first time and that's when everything started to change. Yeah. Um, and were you, did you have ambitions as a, as a writer at that totally. time? Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I knew what I wanted to do from the age of like 17 basically because it was the only thing I could felt like I really enjoyed doing in terms of a career i didn't want to memorize and at that juncture when you're like faking interviews on a bbs i mean could you like this is something i think that's that's hard to sort of think back on could you see the path from that to writing on the web or was that too too fragmented at that point well we did we did we did do kind of like reviewy things there was no long form at all you know it was just just throwing stuff against the wall. I mean, we dressed people in <laughs> we dressed people in like spacesuits and we we filmed them going around New York and it was the, the time something called server push. It was like one frame every 30 seconds. It looked terrible. But um we were just doing whatever could work, but there was no no. I mean, the the internet as a medium as a platform for writing was not really for me it was just the epiphany was like magazines wanted to cover this emerging world and i was just an expert by default i mean i'm not a programmer i'm not anything like that but by virtue of my having been there at the right time i was able to come out and just say hey let's do some stories about this weird wild west that's that's starting to emerge and how did you get from there to where you were to, to where you were actually writing professionally about this stuff yeah i mean it was basically starting with mondo 2000 which i actually started there like in 1992 that was just interviewing people for that magazine and then um really i started i really first started getting heavily into it uh for with spin magazine yeah and i wrote the i think it was the first like i don't remember what it was called but digital culture column and i was you know it was broken up and it was like a game a website a review is that kind of thing but for me the huge the big sort of breakthrough was when i i did a assignment for spin in 1996 about um, a guy who was in a Quake clan. So that was for the computer game Quake. Quake was after Doom. Quake right? was after Doom. Yeah, okay. And it went Wolfenstein, Doom, Quake. Right. Right, yeah. Yeah, and these were like the seminal first-person shooters. And But this was in, I think I did that story in 96. So, you know, my my pitch to them was like, look, you know, I actually had to s- sell it as the dawn of cyber sports, which is just sounds so terrible right now. But that was, it was such a struggle to explain things to people and to get them to give a shit because they really, you know, there was a generation gap in, in, in the publishing world at that time when, where, you know, maybe people who owned or ran magazines, they just didn't get or care. And so you had to really make this strong case. And I got that assignment and, you know, the moment I went out to like to Lawrence, Kansas and walked into this house where people had, you know, their computer. It was a LAN party. Yeah. But at the time we didn't know what it was, but they had all their computers networked together and they're playing Quake and they're, 
you know, and at the moment I walked in there, I'm like, holy crap, this is this is just incredible. And it just what was also really exciting about it was that I felt like nobody was writing about it. So it, it was it felt like a tremendous opportunity. Well, and, and you've sort of continued down that path in, in actually a somewhat linear fashion. Mm-hmm. So dating back to those very first stories where you had to describe the digital world is, at least in its sort of physical permutation, often a very uh, an inexpressive world. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a not terribly verbal and um, not terribly uh, go out and do anything world. It's not where you can say we were, you know, we were at uh, this nightclub with this uh, this band or whatever. It, it's it's an insular world. How did you how did you approach sort of bringing that life to life for people right. who both didn't have the technical knowledge? And didn't really have a proclivity to care. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question, too. And you still hear that now. And and in fact, a lot of times, like I used to write a lot for the circuit section of the New York Times. And I remember the editors would talk about like, oh, another picture of someone at a computer. Right. Exactly. And, you know, and when you go out and you do the kind of um, dog and pony show in Hollywood and you're meeting with producers and all of that who maybe they're interested in something you've written. What you hear out there is the same thing, which is like, how do you dramatize someone at a computer? And it is this strange challenge because you've got um, – I almost started talking about a story that's not out yet. But, you know, you've got you've got these two worlds. And actually yeah. the first couple lines of Masters of Doom were about that. It was just like there was, you know, the, this world of life and this world of play and that, they, and that they lived in both of them. So for me, the way to do it, which was kind of cribbing – from what I had learned from the new journalists, really, yeah, which was like, okay, these people are living in a virtual world, and this virtual world is really vital. With that story, that first story for Spin, the guy I was profiling, his nickname was Fook. Um, this is a guy who really just, I mean, he's a familiar character now more so than then, but he came, he was sort of somewhat dead in real life and just incredibly alive when he played the games. And, and it, and it was going against the conventional wisdom because even to this day, people think of the isolated gamer, Yeah, you know, but this guy who was living in the middle of nowhere in Michigan, he had a tremendous community, a bigger community than I had, you know? Um, and, um, so it was telling his story and telling the kind of in real life story of it. But then it was also kind of tunneling into the dream, you know, and, and like rendering the world and the virtual world and the experience with just as much um, just as much attention as you would the, the room that he's sitting in, you know. So um that was kind of what I arrived at. And then like with Masters of Doom, which sort of grew out of that, you know, there are a lot of scenes like that where I basically decided like, okay, I'm just going to write this book. So when they're in the world, you know, you're in the world because it was first person. So I would describe Carmack, you know, going through this tunnel and seeing the big buckets of toxic slime or whatever as though it was kind of really happening. It wasn't just video games, but it was also Dungeons and Dragons. Like they were huge um, Dungeons and Dragons players. So that in that book, you know, I would in the DD the D and D games really were sort of like an emotional um, projection of their struggles and what they were going through in their lives. It was really fascinating. So I would describe them in that world.
Hey, your host Aaron Lammer here with a quick word from our sponsor, Pro Flowers. Uh, you may or may not know that Valentine's Day is right around the corner, nearly hours away. And if you're like me, you may not have made plans, um, but you can remedy that by going to proflowers.com and ordering a dozen red roses. They'll throw in a free glass face, a teddy bear, and gourmet chocolate gourmet chocolates for only $39.99. These are the classic romantic red roses that you have come to adore and cherish, and you can't get a better price on them. So if you want to do this the easy, convenient, fast way, go to proflowers.com, click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner, and type in long form. That's proflowers.com. There's a blue microphone in the upper right-hand corner, and type in code long form, which helps support this show and will help you and whoever you share your Valentines with have a great time. Uh, here I am back with my guest, David Kushner. So I'm interested actually in a comment you made there tying the way you've covered this stuff to the new journalism, which yeah. is very, um, I think, really came to the national attention by covering the counterculture of the 60s. Mm-hmm. And I do think that some of the stuff you are um, covering is is a counterculture mm-hmm. of a kind. And, and I'm interested in sort of what you adapted and, and what kinds of lessons you took from the people from that generation about how you describe and an alien breed <laughs> to to a reader. Yeah. That's a great question. I mean, I think you're right there. I do think cuz you know, it's funny thinking back and I haven't really thought about it, but back in college, I remember writing a lot of papers about um, you know, Berkeley in the 60s. I was just fascinated by that period of time and that's how I got turned on to like Hunter and all that. Um, and actually, you know, it was I was such a Hunter Thompson fanboy that I took a job at the University of Maryland as the lectures director. And during the interview, they said, why do you want this job? I said, because I really want to meet Hunter Thompson. <laughs> but, but thankfully, a lot of other people were interested in that too. And I booked him to come to Maryland, which turned into like Fear and Loathing in College Park, Maryland. It was just a series of disasters, which were incredible because he ended up getting stranded there. And I had to kind of babysit him for a while. But he eventually did the lecture. And... Um, before the lecture, he actually said that I, he said to me, you know, you have to go sit out on stage next to me during the lecture. I'm like, I do. I'm "I'm not going to do that. There's like 1800 people here. He's like, yeah, you know, you need to do it. I'm like, well, why? He's like, well, you, you know, if I ramble, you have to hit me in the leg. And what I realized was that they had had in his writer, they require, he required a tablecloth that went down to the floor. And the reason was so that the person next to him could hit him in the leg to keep him from rambling. But we went out to the stage and he, there was no tablecloth and he started freaking out. But part of his writer was that he had a bottle of Chivas, which I had to buy. So I know it was real. And he drank it throughout the entire lecture, just killed it. But the point was, is like, you know, a lot of those questions to him were about like how many drugs are in the trunk and did you take them all and fear and thing. And I remember afterwards, I was driving him back to this shitty little Best Western, and I'm like, how'd it go? What would you think? And he, he sort of slumped down in his seat, and he's like, oh, he's like, you know, no one ever asked me about writing. <laughs> and I thought it was kind of like a little poignant moment because, and going back to your question, you know, he was so serious about what he did, even though he was a great satirist. 
And I think that obviously he became such a persona, but the seriousness of what he did um, and how he lived what he was, you know, uh, what he was reporting on, how he immersed himself to the point of being stomped. Yeah. I mean, that's dedication. If you're going to get stomped by Hell's Angels at the end of your book, you know, you've done a good job. Um, So one of the things that I took from all of that was um, the importance of really immersing yourself into whatever it is. And I mean, I've try to do that any any story I do and I've done ones that have nothing to do with the internet you know if it's um whatever a story about um this, this terrible reform school down in Florida where they're finding graves all over the, the right you know you try to just approach it um by spending as much time as you can getting to know the people getting to know the language and you know I guess um, with the counter covering, if we want to call this the new counterculture or the new rock and roll, whatever it is, um, you know, that's kind of tenfold because it's so unfamiliar. You know, a lot of it, when I first started writing about this stuff and when I was doing first covering writing about games and game developers, you know, you kind of have to learn the language. Like, what yeah. are they talking? You know, it's like interviewing someone in the military, which I've done which is when they're throwing out a million acronyms, you have no idea what they're talking about. So, What's your technique for, for drawing out, like someone, say, in that, that situation where you're mm-hmm. like, well, I got to learn the language yeah. so I can talk, so I can speak. Right. But when you're dealing with a, a reticent person or a person right. who's not used to uh, emoting, mm-hmm. um, how do you, like a lot of, of your which work- which I've interviewed many. A lot yeah. of your work is about the people behind this stuff, right. not necessarily the things they did. Yeah. And they're people who are not, easily sharing of feelings right you know um a couple things i mean one is i do something that comes really easily to me which is that i play dumb because i am dumb when it comes to that i mean i don't know and i think that like you know there's you sort of have to fight that impulse to to act like you know everything because the better thing to do is to say you know what i just don't know and i really need your help and i i kind of put my cards on the table and i say to them look you know, I've got to tell your story to a general because I write for, you know, general kind of consumer magazines. I've got to try to explain this to the average person. And I want the average person in the let's say in the sake of in the case of John Carmack, who's considered one of the best growth graphics programmers in the game business. I just would say to him, like, I want to be able to explain how you problem solve. Yeah. And in order to do that, I need to kind of understand what you're talking about. So, um, and Carmack was a great, a great example of this because in this, and I've heard other people on the podcast talk about this kind of thing. Like sometimes before you go into an interview, you hear so much about somebody like yeah. they're not going to talk, you know, you're going to get five minutes. They're going to give you, um, one question, one a- a word answers. Don't even bother. Don't basically. bother. Um, Interestingly, the two in my in, in my career, the the two best examples of, of what I, the point I'm making are John Carmack and Cormac McCarthy, um, because John Carmack, everyone's like, you're not gonna, he's like a robot. Yeah. Well, I went down to sit with him. I remember for the first, I had literally moved to Dallas to write my first book. I mean, it was, you know, there was some risk in that, and um, upended everything. Went out there and basically showed up. Um, you know, he knew I was doing it and I met him at like Olive Garden and I'm saying to myself as I'm walking in, okay, this is either going to be done in five minutes or it's going to go on for hours. And sure enough, it went on for hours because I think that, 
you know, when you, at least for me, when I approach people in that way, which is just very trying to be genuine and tell them what challenges I'm facing and that I do need their help, um, they'll open up and they'll be patient. Whereas I think actually if I followed that more common instinct to sort of say like, oh, well, yeah, I know what raycasting is. Yeah. You sort of lose credibility. Right. So go, being your stupid self is always a good thing when you're reporting, I think. Um, you know, so and I think like just the Cormac McCarthy story is an interesting one. How, to how did you get access to Cormac well, McCarthy this is, in the first place? Yeah, exactly. But the, the story with with Cormac was that I had an assignment for Rolling Stone to write about a theoretical physicist named Lisa Randall, who's from Harvard. And in the course of interviewing her, we're just talking and it um you know, she just said, you know, I, um, she's like, in this new book that I wrote, yeah, I was hanging out at the Santa Fe Institute, which is this really interesting kind of um, think tank in the hills of Santa Fe. And yeah, I met and Cormac McCarthy hangs out there, you know, and he actually edited my book. And anyway, so the book's coming out. And I said, well, let's hit rewind on that. Like, Cormac McCarthy edited your book? And what? So we started talking about that. And she's like, yeah, he's just got a real passion for physics. He hangs out there. He moved to Santa Fe just to be near this place. And um, I said, that is incredible. And, um, you know, for this story, it would be great to, to talk with him. Now, the minute I asked that question, I knew because I'm a big fan of Cormac McCarthy's and my father was a huge fan and got kind of turned me on to him. I knew Corm- I knew the, the urban legend around Cormac. Like there was this story that a reporter had once shown up at his house in El Paso and that he opened the door and said said to the reporter, like, don't do this to yourself and then shut the door. <laughs> uh, so I'm figuring like, okay, whatever. But at the same time, I'm like, you know, I've been down this road a lot. And sometimes the people who you think are going to be the most difficult are not. So I hung up. She said, you know what? I'll ask. Let's see what happens. And, you know, but you know the story with him. I'm like, yeah, because he'd done two interviews in like 20 years in his career. He'd yeah. done one for, I think, the New York Times and maybe one for Vanity Fair and just in 30, 20 years. Yeah. So I hung up and I called my dad and I said, Dad, OK, here's what's about to happen. I, I might get the opportunity to talk to Cormac McCarthy. And if I do, it'll hap- it'll go for either five minutes or it'll go for like three hours. So he's like, all right, let me know. So Lisa Randall calls me back five minutes later and she's like, you're not going to believe this, but he's going to talk with you. So I said, great, you know, and um, called him up. And sure enough, we talked for like three hours, you know, and it was just I think maybe because it was about Lisa, um, who was a friend of his. And also but but the thing that I was I was genuinely really curious about was his interest in science. And we started talking about that. So science is so close to his heart that he moved to Santa Fe to be near this science institute. So that opened that up. And then by the end of the interview, I just said, you know, Cormac, um, I know you don't like to do a lot of stories, but uh, any <laughs> for that matter. Um, but, you know, I think there's a really cool story to be done on you and the Institute. And he said, yeah, I'm game for that. Um, and, you know, got the assignment from Rolling Stone. And um, next thing you know, I was out there. And he was just the most gracious, funny, easygoing, you know, guy you, you could ever meet. But I just think these are really important little lessons for people, colleagues, 
newbies, whatever, which is just don't make up your mind before you approach someone because you never know. And also the people who you think are going to be easy and open turn out not to be. Yeah. So moving forward, we we uh, we got you to about 2,000. <laughs> um, you've actually seen, you know, when it comes to technology, which I would say about half of your stories have at least something to do with technology. Yeah. You've seen several kind of waves come come and go. Right. Um, when it comes to video games, there was a sort of the initial, um, you know, uh, is this going to lead our ch- children into depths of evil, mm-hmm. right? That was the sort of first wave of coverage mm-hmm. of video games. And then people kind of like let that Obviously one Obviously that, that happened. Yeah, that look, happened. Look at us sitting here yeah. drinking beers so, during so, this podcast. So that happened. <laughs> and then I think the second wave sort of was, can video games be art? Mm-hmm. You know, are, are video games really, should they, should we put them in the art section or should we not put them in the art section? Right. And I think that that question, I hope, is also a little deaded yeah. now, too, where it's just kind of like, all right, yes. You know, it's like the same story you always see, like, right. um, like uh, graphic novels, they're not just for kids. Yeah. Like, um, and that sort of died. So when when you see these sort of rise and falls, I mean, and I was going to say, I don't know what the next stage is. I don't know what stage three is, but it must be something you think about when you're choosing to cover this topic about sort of where you mm-hmm. fit into the larger constellation of people writing about this topic. And you're writing for Rolling Stone, yeah. uh, GQ. Mm-hmm. These are like big, particularly Rolling Stone, I would yeah. say. Is, it's a big mainstream American brand. Right. You're... Um, you are reaching uh, the dorm rooms of the Big Ten, um, mm-hmm. and this is not for like people who are like reading like hackery stuff online. This is like a it's a big print magazine. So, how much are you thinking about that that re- Rolling Stone reader and, and and the fact that this is a ma- sort of a mainstream magazine when you're reporting a story? Like a lot, that? yeah. And I get a lot of practice. I practice every day yeah. when I'm talking to someone who, when I'm almost when I'm talking to anybody, because yep. I'm the guy who has got to explain to my mom or to, you know, to explain to people what is this, you know, what is Snapchat? Like right. explain Snapchat to your mother. You right. know, that's kind of what I have to do. I and, still can't explain long <laughs> to my mother. You know, yeah, and um, so. You know, I think that um, that's a real discipline, which is really hard. It's probably the hardest thing. And it's not just writing about technology that makes that a challenge. I think any every story in my mind has some sort of data, yeah. technical material, whether it's, I don't know, the craft of music or if it's politics, whatever it is, there's sort of like the geekiness of it. Yeah. that, And you've got to sort of unpack that and explain it. And I've been doing that now for like, Jesus, it's embarrassing, but it's been like 20 years. So that's a long time, you know, and and I was always in the position of and, and seeing myself as someone writing for a, or a, I wanted to communicate. I want to make other people see what I see in video games like and I felt like that's sort of a job to do, you know. So with WikiLeaks or whatever it is, um, I'm definitely thinking about it and not only am I thinking about it but I have amazing editors who are super smart um, who are making those same points and as much as I think I'm explaining you know like uh, if I'm trying to explain the deep web they'll use they'll, they might come back to me and say look we need three more lines on the deep web yeah we don't get it 
Do you miss? I mean, you as someone who worked at Mondo two thousand. Yeah. I mean, do you miss the like the zine? Do you do you miss writing from within the counterculture rather than just about the counterculture? Not to insult Rolling Stone yeah. on this podcast, isn't, isn't but that, isn't that called? Uh, um, no, no, not not really, because I mean, like Wired, you know, I, I've done a lot of work for Wired, and that's a, you know, every every magazine is different, and I yeah. think it's a, and you know, occasionally I do teach at NYU, and I think one of the mistakes that people make when they're pitching magazines, yeah, is they don't take that into account, like they don't think about well. There's a WikiLeaks story that you're going to write for Rolling Stone that's going to be very different from the one for Wired and really different from the one for the New Yorker or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. So I am very I try to be very aware of the audience. Yeah. You know, because I'm I'm you know, I'm running kind of, uh, you know, I, I have um, my own little radar going on thinking about, OK, what can they what do they know? What do they not know? You have to explain it. But it's all pacing, too. You know, when and how, because you don't want to just drone on about encryption. It's yeah. fucking dull. And, you know, I mean, it's interesting, but it's also narratively, it's kind of like you don't want to stop and have to take out a PowerPoint presentation, you know. So what I try to do um, in my stories is that like when a character encounters something for the first time, whether it's a particular um kind of software or whether it's a bunch of physicists up in um up in santa fe i try to kind of like use those moments to introduce the reader to what the character is seeing for the first time if that makes sense right so there's like natural beats within every stories of where people are seeing something for the first time or like i did this story about you know the reform school in florida yeah like this is a reform school with a terrible past of abuse and my main character arrived there sort of mid-century after it had been around for 50 years so what you know the moment that he pulls up to this place and looks at it i can kind of s introduce it to the reader as he's getting introduced to it let's actually talk a little bit about um bones of mariana mm -hmm. which is as i understand it uh a story that you sort of worked through several different versions mm -hmm. of yeah. over an extended period of time. So yeah. where like where does a story like that start for you? This is a, a story that is what time? Pretty pretty long, pretty deep into history. I'm forgetting exactly. How about a hundred years ago, yeah? Well no, it's it's up till the present day, but this was in this was um kind of a Kindle single that I right. did um with with the Atavis. Yes. And um you know that it, it, that's a story about um I've often tried to think about what if what is the theme if there is one, and I realize that I guess there are, there are some. I mean, besides just technology, but the bigger the stories. Yeah, a lot of times they're kind of like David and Goliath stories. Yes, you know, um, they're in stories of invention. Yeah, and um, I and I'm just I don't know. Startups are interesting to me. So they're often I would say David and Goliath stories where David is not like a, a totally great guy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, there's some ambiguity and they're an anti-hero or they're just coming crawling out of the muck, you know, to take yeah. on some because everything everything is kind of all of these characters are sort of hacking a system. You know, right. I mean, they're all the people I wrote a book about Levittown, you know, and Levittown being sort of the first mass produced suburb. But the dirty secret of it was that it was whites only. Yeah. And in the summer of 1957. Um, this uh, Jewish communist couple from the Bronx who had moved there secretly arranged for the first African-American family to buy 
a home next door and sort of blockbust Levittown. Yeah. It became this big race riot and led to the downfall of this tycoon, William Levitt, who he and his brother kind of invented this this suburbia uh, production machine. So Bones Mariana, I mean, that was similar in that this was like the model reform school at the turn of the century. Where did you, like, where did you first come across the well, story? Well, okay, the good thing that I have going for me is that I grew up in Florida. That's maybe the best thing. Growing up from Florida... Florida and, is the source of 50% of the stories in America. Oh, I mean, I can't tell you. I've written a ton. Believe me, I've wrung that state dry. Um, where did you grow up in Florida? I grew up in Tampa. And Tampa's weird because, like, Florida... I would say Florida is sort of like upside down. Like the more northern you get, the more southern it is. Or yeah. is and Tampa's kind of the squashed in the middle. But Tampa's claim to fame is that it was um, Gibsonton was. I thought its claim to fame was that it was the strip up capital of America. There's all that, right? So strip club capital, capital of death metal. Yeah, you may not know. Um, notable people have dropped dead there, um, like you know Jack Kerouac and um, people like that. But um, Tampa uh, also is the home to Gibsonton, Florida, which X Files fans might remember as being. This is the like, was the world capital of carnies and uh, sideshow freaks. Which you've freaks. also done a story about. Yeah, yeah. So oh, you really haven't milked it. I didn't oh yeah. <laughs> oh, I've written about dog race. You know, dog breeders for greyhound dog breeders and paintball teams and. Um, but yeah, but Florida, the Bones of Mariana, I mean, this is probably Florida at its most insidious. And it was this, you know, model re- reform school in North, in the Panhandle at the turn of the century, which for 100 years had the worst acts of abuse, just horrific and unimaginable. And the big question was, how did this go on? It went on for 100 years. Into the modern era. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. So it was from... Uh, you know, it was from it opened like 1900, and this went on up until 2011 when it was closed. So, um, I had heard about this, and it was sort of notorious in the state. And then what happened was these anthropologists, who happened to be from the department, my my father was an anthropologist, and it was my father's department who ended up getting involved in this going up there, um, some forensic anthropologists to, to look to excavate. To look for um there had been reports of there had been stories of graves and a marked grave. So um they went to go look and they ended up finding like all of these unmarked graves and it opened up the story of like what happened in Mariana, which is the town. Um you know, my dad passed away, he's no longer there, but I kind of knew I, when I read it was their department the, his department, that interests me and I can kind of know the people that, who were there and I know Florida. So, um, but again, that was a story that is, you know, it has the elements I like, which is like a system, you know, an invention. And then it has the underdogs, the kind of rebellion, you know, and the rebellion was a lot. uh, It was these guys who survived the beatings who called themselves the white house boys because they were beaten in a little building called the white house. So what was your, as you started to sort of reconstruct this, what was, who, who did you talk to first about this story? Mm, Really starting. I wanted to tell the story of the white house boys and I didn't know quite where to start. And this is another thing. It's just like, sometimes you want to write about a person more so than the world that they're in. And maybe, you know, the world is part of what interests you, but you're really interested in the person. Sometimes you're really interested in the world and the story. Like this, I was interested in it. It, To me, it was a mystery that had science in it, you know, and and abuse. And it was just dark and it was Florida. Um, 
So then it was like, well, who's who's going to hold the narrative? And after talking, you know, you don't know that right off the bat. And like we talked about earlier, you don't know what you're going to get until you start talking. So in the course of reporting, I ended up sitting across the table from this guy named Jerry Cooper, who it turned out um, he was a he was a quarterback for the the school had a football team that allegedly was the basis for the Burt Reynolds movie, The Longest Yard, which was a comedy. But um, but they had a football team and he was the quarterback of this team. And now, 50 years later, he's kind of quarterbacking the fight for justice because he was beaten in the White House. And Jerry Cooper is just such an incredible character that I, the minute I talk, you know, you know, it's really like I really the only thing I can compare it to is bowling. Yeah. Not that I'm much of a bowler, but, you know, on the few times that I've thrown a strike, you know it before it hits the pins. So, I, you know, I have a very good like spider sense when. Oh my, this is the person. Yeah. And so that just starts firing immediately. And, and it's funny because I'll say it, you know, when I'm talking to them, I'm like, I'll be like, oh, you know, this is an incredible story. Your story is unbelievable. And so um, that was it, you know, basically finding him after talking to a lot of people, going down um, dead end roads. And then from there, it just opens up, you know, and then it's kind of like once I find the character, I'm always looking for characters who the best characters are the ones who um especially when you're trying to explore a world like the world of say anonymous you know you, to have someone who has been through enough of the story that their narrative can take you to a lot of places and it touches on a lot of people the recent one for rolling stone which was about this guy ky anonymous who was leading the Steubenville yeah. leading is a loaded word to say when the same sentence with anonymous, but he was uh, he had put himself out as a as a Spoke, face spokesman of kind so, yeah trying to organize this. Yeah. So what was different about it and the, the angle on it was well one it was it was about anonymous, but more so that was really about his story. Just was a crazy story. I mean, he was just this guy from Kentucky from a just a terribly abusive household. Where, um, you know, he he saved his mother from some guy and had to stab the guy and this kid was bullied and he became sort of a hacker hacking against, um, you know, on on behalf of victims. And but I think his personal story was what really it was like, well, this is a really interesting story and it's putting a face on something to that to a lot of people's faceless and putting a heart into it. You know, um, do you have a methodology? I mean, if you've got this many stories yeah. in the air at once or mm -hmm. coming out with this many stories and you're pitching them each, I mean, have you, have you like, uh, made yourself more efficient over time? Yeah. It's kind of, you know, I always am sort of like, like how many, how many features a year do you write? Oh God. I, I, I don't know. I honestly, I don't, I couldn't tell you. I don't, I truthfully. Minimum six, I would say. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And usually I have a book in the background. I mean, but I'm not, I know my limits and yeah. I know my capabilities and I am incredibly dedicated to telling the story that I'm telling. So I, I will, you know, not, a lot of the times I have the luxury of not having a hard deadline because sometimes I do like, um, you know, there's something I'm doing now, which will be out in the next Rolling Stone, which there's some urgency to it. So that's different. Can you talk about it? Not right now. But um, but by the time this comes out, check, check the show notes. People for that. will read it. But yeah. um, but, you know, so it depends. But a lot of the times if I don't have that, you know, 
I'll just take the time I need. And I thankfully have figured out a way to multitask that doesn't just enable me to write a lot of different. It doesn't it does enable me to be somewhat prolific, but I've realized that it keeps me. That's the fuel I need. It's hard to explain, but it's almost like going to the gym and working out on different machines, you know, like if you are just on one machine, like at least for me, I'll burn out. What are what are the different machines in your in your arsenal? Like, <laughs> well, what? there's the bicep curl. <laughs> so, like, uh, I'm assuming some of it's pitching because if you if you're coming out with more than six a year, you must be pitching. Yeah, all I mean, the time. any writer. I mean, y- yeah. So you're pitching, and you're, then you've got research. You're researching. You're traveling, and then there's writing. And then there's so, writing. are you doing all three of those things simultaneously? Yeah, but I've learned. I, I think this just comes with experience. You know, I mean, I've definitely written thousands of stories. Like, I, I've maybe thousands. I don't feels like it after 20 odd years. Like I used to write a bunch for Wired News and Rolling Stone online, but you, you know, um you develop a muscle, I think, just like anything else. And but but here's the thing that not that is important in at least in my case and I would guess in a lot of other people's cases too. Um well, I know it's in other people's cases, which is that like you know, once you become um, immersed in a world yeah. and and sort of an expert in that world yeah. just by virtue of time, I can now sit down and if I'm sitting down to write something that deals with anonymous, I now have six years of experience to draw from. Right. So I can sit here, I could write, if I got to do a section which is dealing with the, the, the whatever, you know, chinology... Scientology, like I was there, I was there in LA, I was at the Church of Scientology when they were protesting. I was with the guys in the funky Indian restaurant and the Guy Fox masses, they were planning the protest. Like, so it all, what I do now is I do sort of draw on my own area of research mm-hmm. where you're not so much recycling as it is you're just building knowledge. So at this point, for those bigger worlds, that's one of the things that I'm kind of coming to these stories with a lot of the heavy lifting. I don't have to do that kind of orientation. I don't have to read the travel guide to planet anonymous. Like now I've been there. I can put the book aside and go check it out. Other times though, that's why you'll know, I think, and I haven't really, you're forcing me to think about some of these things, but I think those bigger world stories that are chipping away, like I am sort of writing a big track on hackers and I'm writing yeah. track on like gamers and like anonymous, like the, or, but hackers and gamers, that's a big, I've done many, many stories on both of those worlds. So I'm kind of tend to, I like staying in that line. And fortunately they're interesting, especially hackers are just, it's yeah. cyber crimes. Interesting. But the other stories that are, I'll do now are just the self-contained, a lot of times are crime stories because those have really nice beginning, middle, and ends. I'm a big film TV nerd, you know? And so I kind of, like, look at them like those... Crime is always, I mean, yeah. you know, people people always want to, like, ask, like, oh, what you know, what are the most common stories in long form? It's, like, it's all crime. It's 50% crime stories. Yeah. Like, the world... The world's attention span. Yeah. If you if you look in fiction, right. nonfiction, TV, yeah. movies, the world is interested in crime. It's yeah. just proven that over and right. over and again. It's fun, and it's also you got a beginning, middle, and an end. This is important. Like a lot of the stories that have done, especially early on, there was no built-in narrative. There's no beginning, middle, and end to Masters of Doom. Like I had to impose that 
And even a lot of these technology stories are about a a technology crime. It's something about the stakes of a criminal act occurring in the story. Yeah, and you have that built-in end of the person getting caught. So, like, I'll do, you know, a story for Vanity Fair, which was about this just wacky kind of caper about um, an art heist involving um, this guy, Todd White, who was a character artist on SpongeBob. And who who's become a well-known I artist? Forgot this. I forgot this story was you. This story's crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. I love those sort of just crazy, twisty, fun crime stories. So that'll always do, like the bank heist story. Yeah, you right. Know? So where do you, I mean? Where do you go from here? I mean, you're at a you're at a pace. You're the rare person on this show where I don't have to ask you, are you making a live? Can mm-hmm. you make a living on this? Because I'm assuming. Uh, with this kind of volume, you're yeah. making a living on it. Is this something you just want to ride out, or do you have different ambitions for the rest of your life? Um, no, you know, I I like it. I just really enjoy it. You know, it's fun. It's like the lifestyle is a nice balance because it's like I'm either, you know, working quietly in a yeah. life of routine, or I'm in just a completely bizarre situation like. You know, how many days a year are you like away from your house? Well, it varies, but it can be a lot and it can come in. It come tends to come in waves. Yeah. You know, but like last fall was insane. I mean, just going from Iceland to like Liberia and to here and there, um, it just piles up. But it's hard to predict. It's um, like right now I'm feeling burnout on traveling, honestly. Yeah. So I'm like and i have fortunately i have a lot of writing to do right. so i'm just going to be hanging out what is like, what is that amount of time like in like strange hotels do do to you sort of personally <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez yeah oh god and i've been in some i mean uh <laughs> you know every writer and i i can hear the collective sigh like you've yeah. had those stories where you're in a holiday you know i'm in a holiday in in um you know in just the middle of nowhere in Tennessee for a week and there's the Cracker Barrel. Yeah. You get to know the Cracker Barrel really well, you know? And fortunately now there's Netflix, so that helps. But honestly, at the, when I'm reporting at the end of the day, I am so fried. And if I'm even like, I'm just, I just go full throttle and then collapse and then go back the next day. And then I sort of don't put a lot of pressure on myself to figure it all out while I'm there. Yeah. Like it's more just like, you know, just live it and be here as intensely as I can. Do you take a lot of notes when you're on the road or mm, with um, How I don't do you sort of record these experiences? Yeah. See, this is what, this is what you need to devote an entire, like I would love to hear other uh, writers talk about this. And I have, cause it's fascinating. Yeah, because notes are so hard to describe. People, whenever I ask the notes question, I'm like, eh, it would be easier if you just showed me your notes because you know, it's hard to describe what they look like. You know, it's incredible because it's like you had Gay Talese on, right? Like yeah. Gay Talese, as you, I'm sure you know, he would use the um, the shirt boards. Yeah, the little shirt boards, and yep. he would like sneak into the bathroom and write on. They must have thought he, you know, had some kind of bladder problem because he was always going to the bathroom to take notes. Truman Capote. Um, I think would just land and he wouldn't take any notes and he would go sit down on his computer and just or rather typewriter (laughs) and he would just spew it out. Yeah. You know, then what I learned and this is sheerly from my own experience and my own sort of DNA, which is that and I was like never a student in class who would sit there and be crazily. I would take notes. I would just get lost. I don't know what. I have to just, I'm more intuitive and I just need to soak it in and process it. Yeah. So I learned, it took me a while to learn to trust that. 
and to learn to trust that I'm going to remember the things that are important. You know, when I get back, um, yeah, I'll take notes, but there's a great scene in the movie Adaptation, you yeah. know, about Susan Orlean um, with Meryl Streep. And there's a scene where Meryl Streep is driving in the truck with the, the orchid thief or one of the guys. And he's talking to her and she's sitting there taking notes. And you look at her, they show her notepad and it says bad teeth. <laughs> so that's what I often find is that um, I'm interviewing people with bad teeth. No, but that, you know, I'm basically the notes that I take. I'm very much if I'm taking notes, it's a lot of times because I use a tape recorder. Like yeah. I tape everything because to me that just lets, you know, there's a lot of debate about people do that they don't do it for me there's nothing to lose by having it on tape yeah is that because um because it allows you to to quote directly from the tape or because it just means you don't miss a word i am obsessed with getting things right i really am and it's like to me getting down what a person said as they said it is i need to get that right you know so that's why i want to have it on tape do you um, do you hide the tape recorder? Or Never. It's just out. In your no, hand? and I don't do you know. And I know everyone has their own technique, and that's great. Whatever works for you. Yeah. For me, I'm just like I'm just trying to keep it real. Does it I, inhibit people? Yeah, to, sometimes. That there's a tape rolling. Yeah. Sometimes, and I'll wait. Like yeah. I'll wait, and sometimes people get freaked out. Yeah. And I kind of talk. You know, it's like you know you're talking them down. Yeah. Um, and I will wait, and sometimes they'll say put that away, and you know, but. I would say 90% of the time, it's not it because it's like, it, to me, it's like, I'm here to tell your story and I want to get it right. You know, I want to, um, so that, and it also frees me up to just focus, listen, ask follow-up questions, observe the room. That's yeah. generally the first thing I do when I get in and I'm interviewing someone. My, all my first notes are, I'm taken in the room. Yeah. And I'm taking in the person, but like really all the details, like I did this story about Geohot, like a hacker for the New Yorker and his apartment was just like, it, you know, a bomb had just gone off of it. And yeah. so I'm just trying to get it all down. I'm trying to get down like the crappy air mattress that's half inflated and his to do list on the wall, which includes like watering his plants and seeing his therapist and going to the gym or, you know, I think that getting those kind of details about environments and things like that. You know, I always know how important that is, so I try to do it right away. Yeah. Like, when I go sit down with somebody, I'm sort of, that's sort of like, okay, I need to get that done. I need to, and sometimes, I have to say, it occurred to me, because I'm slow, it finally occurred to me a few years ago, I'm like, you know, if the person's cool about it, I can sort of just take a couple pictures. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, you know, there's a lot to remember, and to me, writing a story is... You're just you're just sort of harvesting. You're in there. You're just kind of like Katamari Damase. Yeah, is that too far out of no, a reference? <laughs> many many a stoned hour. Yeah, <laughs> it's a video game where you're this big ball rolling over junk. Yeah, in a so, room. But you have to imagine it's like an anime version of that kind yeah. of. But that's sort of what you are. Like you're in there and you just want all this stuff. You're hoovering it all up. So to me, I'm like, okay, if the person's cool and it's and oftentimes it's not appropriate. 
But if it is, I'll say, hey, do you mind? And, you know, I'll just go around and take pictures. Do you mind if I film all of your stuff? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, This has been an excellent chat. Thank you very much for coming in, David. Um, Great to be here. I love the podcast. We'll have the books linked to in the show notes. Yes, I appreciate uh, uh, David is a a, a listener, a listener and a guest, and uh, that's always the best kind. Yeah, I know you guys are doing a great thing. Thanks a lot for coming out, Um, and we'll be back next week. All right. Thanks. And that was the Longform Podcast. Uh, thanks to my guest, David Kushner, my co-host, Max Linsky, Evan Ratliff, our editor, Lauren Kirchner, our intern, Sarah Button, our sponsors, Pro Flowers and Tiny Letter. You guys are the best. We'll be back here next week. Thanks for listening. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.